So welcome everyone to the third installment of the Phenotips speaker series titled The Importance of Deep Phenotyping in Precision Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Pavel Buczkovic, and joined today by our very special guest, Dr. Peter Robinson. Thanks for joining. The agenda for today's 60-minute uh, webinar will include uh, some introductions um, and then a 45-minute presentation by Dr. Peter Robinson followed by a question and answer session. You can submit your questions through the chat or through the Q&A function in this application. If you use that feature, you can also upload questions that are posted throughout the presentation to make sure that the most popular questions get prioritized. This webinar series is brought to you by Phenotips, the world's first genomic health record system, a software and service challenging the status quo of genomic medicine by modernizing and streamlining your workflows. It includes features like pedigree drawing, uh, standardized clinical symptom capture in HPO, and diagnostic insights. Since electronic health records aren't built for genetics, Phenotips fills the gaps by providing a complete suite of digital genetics tools. In light of the pandemic and many of our colleagues, collaborators, uh, and friends working remotely from home, uh, Phenotips is now hosting this speaker series. Um, so I'll be your host. My name is I'm the COO and VP of Scientific and Medical Affairs at Phenotips. My drive and calling uh, are actually to make tangible and beneficial impact on how medicine and healthcare is practiced. I do this through advocating for technological innovation, collaborating on cutting edge research across the fields of computer science and medicine, as well as helping optimize clinical workflows and operations. This is why I am very excited to actually introduce our topic uh, and speaker for today's webinar. Precision medicine promises to improve all areas of medicine uh, and genetics increasing role in clinical decision-making is also highlighting the importance of data models, computation and ontologies. Phenotypic analysis is an invaluable tool uh, for genotype-phenotype correlation and variant analysis. Without computation data structures for phenotyping, this analysis would be time-consuming, uh, variable, and often error-prone. Deep phenotyping with the human phenotype ontology, which has more than 13,000 terms describing dysmorphologies, signs and symptoms, and over 156,000 annotations to her hereditary diseases, is further supporting the drive for genomic medicine. With an ever-increasing role of genetic testing, long waiting periods for patients to consult with geneticists and GCs, deep phenotyping will play an increasingly important role in precision medicine. I'm honored to introduce to you Dr. Peter Robinson, who will present to you uh, on the topic of the importance of deep phenotyping in precision medicine. Dr. Robinson received an MS in mathematics and computer science from Columbia University and an MD from the University of Pennsylvania. He completed training as a pediatrician at Charité University Hospital in Berlin, Germany, where he and his group developed the Human Phenotype Ontology, an international standardized vocabulary for phenotypic abnormalities encountered in human disease. Each term in the HPO describes a phenotypic abnormality, and the HPO is used by several world-renowned institutions and projects, such as the Sanger Institute, NIH-funded groups like the Undiagnosed Diseases Program, Genome Canada, the 100,000 Genomes Project in the UK, and of course, also the main ontology used in phenotypes. His group developed algorithms and software for the analysis of exome and genome sequencing data and identified several novel disease-causing genes. He's published hundreds of manuscripts, many of them in prestigious journals like Nature Genetics, Cell, the New England Journal of Medicine, to name a few, and according to Google Scholar, has garnered over 19,000 citations for his work. He is currently a professor and Donald A. Rue Chair in Genomics and Computational Biology at the Jackson Laboratory in Farmington, Connecticut. He is also the director of the Human Phenotype Ontology Consortium and the co-program director of the Monarch Initiative. Dr. Robinson, please take it away. Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. So um, I will share my screen. Uh, is, are my slides now visible? They are. So yeah, so I'd just like to start. Thank you for the introduction and uh, maybe start off with, with a little history that might be of interest to, to this audience. 
So we, we started working on the HPO in 2007, published it in 2008, and uh, Phenotips was, was um, uh, I forget actually the exact date when Phenotips came out, but it was the first software that actually made it easy for people to, to use HPO to annotate patients and um, was, uh, I, I think, uh, enabled a lot of people to start using HPO. So we've always been uh, grateful to Phenotips. Um, I'd also say at the Jackson Lab, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's not a hospital, so I'm no longer involved in clinical care as I was in, in Berlin at, at the Charité. Uh, but we, we were using Phenotips there and it, I very much like the software. So um, I, I should say I'm not getting any money from Phenotips, but if they want to buy me a beer, um, as a result of this endorsement, I, I probably would accept it. Um, but, um, okay, I'm gonna start now. So, um, the, uh, oops, why can't I now, here we go. So, I, I guess the first thing that um, people might ask, and, and we've, we've heard this question a lot, is sort of what is an ontology and why do you need it? And so I, I usually start off, uh, talks with, with slides like this. So um, Margaret Dayhoff was, was actually the first bioinformatician and, and she came up with um, matrices called PAM matrices that uh, are, are, are very similar to the Blossom matrices still used today by the software called BLAST. And so if you're searching for a DNA sequence, um, you know, you'll, you'll send the sequence to the server at NCBI and uh, you'll, you'll get, the, there's a very elegant algorithm and it will calculate the, the best hits and return them to you. And so this is, this is sort of, um, you know, the, the, the thing that most bioinformatics software does, or a lot of it, sort of you have something you're interested in, but you're just trying to find it, send it off to a database and, and rank the similarity to elements in the database. And, you know, we were, we were doing medical genetics in Berlin and trying to do the same thing with, with patients, but it, it, it's not immediately obvious, you know, how do you calculate a similarity between, you know, a guy with a common cold, somebody with a broken arm, uh, somebody with, with sepsis or, or um, you know, an EKG abnormality and so on. And um, the, the answer that, that we came up with in, involved ontologies and, and so um, let, let me just give you uh, a little intuition about how, how ontologies work. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to be very mathematical or, or algorithmical in this talk. It's all about intuition, but if, if you do have some questions, I'm, I'd be happy to, to answer. Um, so this, this, Tom Gruber was, was one of the, the giants in, in computer science um, and um, he, he was working in the field of knowledge representation in, in the 90s. And uh, he, he was the first one to come up with a really great definition of ontology. And he said, it's a specification of a conceptualization. And so the first time I saw that, I was not enlightened. It's, not, it, it's, it's very concise, but um, actually it's easy. So a conceptualization, that means that you're, you're talking about a domain of knowledge. And you just say, what are all of the concepts? What are all the items in this domain? So for instance, if I'm talking about wine, which I do a lot, um, the items of your domain of knowledge might be Rioja, they might be Cabernet Sauvignon, they might be um, Riesling. All of these are very, are very delicious uh, wines. And you, know, you can imagine uh, having a, a wine catalog that might have hundreds or thousands of, of entries. And um, that's not an ontology yet, but that's a conceptualization of the domain of wines. And if, if you provide definitions such as Rioja is a, a Spanish red wine, then you get a glossary or a dictionary. And um, it, if you define synonyms, uh, then you get a thesaurus and, or a thesaurus. And, and so um, I don't think it's too common for wines to have synonyms, but uh, you know, obviously many items in many domains have, have long lists of synonyms, especially medicine. None of this is an ontology. Um, when you start to specify how the items in your domain are related to each other, 
then you get an ontology. So everything on the right side of the red line. And uh, the most common way of specifying how items are related to each other is subclassing. So Rioja is a subclass of red wine. And red wine and white wine and, and rosé wine are all subclasses of wine. So you get a, a hierarchy. And, and so that's, um, that's an ontology. And uh, there are many, many different kinds of relations between um, objects, so instances. For instance, Mickey Mouse is not a subclass of mouse. Mickey Mouse is an instance of, of mouse. And um, let's say nucleus, it's not a, a subclass of cell. It's, it's uh, located in cell. And um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip some of the details, but um, it's a very beautiful part of computer science. And um, that's, and, and we've, we've been working on ontologies really in the field of gene ontology uh, for, for some years and basically decided, well, let's, let's start to apply this to uh, the, the human phenotype. And um, in, in the past 10 years, uh, you know, we've all seen this sort of explosion of big data that's now starting slowly to be used for, for medicine. And um, so if, if you're interested in, in reading about that, we, we published a review uh, about two years ago that um, gives sort of an update on, on not just on HPO, but just on, on what ontologies are being used um, in medicine and, and where we might go. And, and so th this is sort of a vision slide but uh, you know we're, we're defining Fanconi anemia, which is in, on the left side of the slide, uh, basically by by sort of saying, well, what characterizes this disease? So has phenotype uh, points to a list of terms that you can see the orange ones that say microcephaly and short stature and so on. Those are HPO terms. But uh, you might also want to define the disease based on on how you can test for it. So you can with Fanconi anemia, you can test for uh, uh, DNA damage, chromosomal breakage. Um, there are environmental factors that influence this uh, hereditary disease, such as aldehydes, or, or you know, you should not give cross-linking agents to these patients. Um, it's got subtypes um, that are related to the the um, the genes. So Fanconi A, Fanconi B, and so on uh, are um, individual genes which, if mutated, are, are associated with this disease. And um, uh, th these genes uh, encode proteins that are members uh, that, that uh, fulfill certain functions in the cell. Many of them are uh, involved in, in DNA repair. Um, and the, I guess the interesting thing is that um, there, there are intersections between different diseases. So for instance, acquired aplastic anemia has a very similar uh, sort of blood phenotype to Fanconi anemia, but it doesn't have the malformations. Uh, and, but some of the risk factors are, are roughly similar, so they can also damage DNA. And um, I, I think it's quite likely that uh, as we start to understand more about molecular medicine, that um, just analyzing the phenotypes and, and environments uh, and will, will, will actually help us to understand uh, how to stratify patients for, for treatment. And um, I'm not going to talk about this today, but the Monarch Initiative, it has been developing ontologies for um, environmental exposures, uh, for, for medical actions, including treatments, and, and some other things that actually go uh, part of the way to uh, fulfilling the, the vision shown in this slide. So that, that's sort of the sexy part of ontologies. Uh, the boring part is shown here, um, and, and that's just plain old interoperability, and and that's important because, um, you know, when I was starting to work on genetics in the 90s, um, there there were lots of boutique databases about genetic diseases, and each of them was using a, its own separate schema, and and so you you just couldn't exchange data between databases, and it it would have been impossible uh, to analyze an exome where you're, you really need sort of the same standards for each gene in the genome in, in the 90s using the databases that existed then because they, they were just all different. And um, so Tony Brooks, uh, who's uh, one of my favorite colleagues, uh, and we, we wrote a, a paper about 
databases and, and I contributed, you know, basically uh, some sections about how ontologies are used to help uh, connect between different databases. Um, and, and so this, 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 this was sort of the, the situation in the 90s, well actually still even in this millennium. Um, and you know, if, you, if, you, if you're talking about some, the, the same thing, uh, you can find very different descriptions. So if you're talking about muscle wasting that affects many different muscles, the, the medical term is generalized amyotrophy. Uh, but uh, it turns out there, there are at least 10 synonyms that you, know, you can look up in, in the corresponding HPO terms. And so a computer doesn't know that generalized amyotrophy is the same thing as muscular atrophy, comma, generalized. And that, that's where just basically having, having an ontology, um, oops, sorry, can help to um, connect data from different sources. And so uh, now I'm going to start to talk about the HPO. So the, this is a, one of the terms of the HPO. Um, it's for macrocephaly, which basically just means a large uh, skull. And um, each term in the HPO is identified by an accession number. These are these HP colon uh, seven digit number that you may have seen. Um, and uh, we uh, have tried to uh, provide a, an English language definition for each of these terms. And our, our goal is that, you know, um, postdocs, uh, doctors from different fields can, can understand it. So, you know, a radiologist should be able to understand the definition of an immunology term in the HPO. Um, we, we provide lists of, of synonyms that uh, we, we think are useful for text mining and just finding the terms. and um, we, we, we do provide uh, cross-references to other ontologies. Um, there, there are a few other things in the, um, each term that I'm gonna skip for right now, but um, I might get back to it. So, so this, is, um, this is just a representation of um, so some of the work we've done on HPO. And I'm, I'm showing this not to say how many publications I've published, but to say we have published because uh, many of these publications uh, have have had you know fifty or seventy authors, and these have been clinicians who have helped us to extend the HPO, and it's become quite a, a community project. And and so for the past twelve years, uh, you know we've been having one to up to four workshops a year. So one of the recent ones, for instance, was on eye disease, and we were very lucky that uh, a um, an eye doctor from uh, Manchester. Uh, Panos Sargionotis organized uh, a, a workshop in, in the European Rare Disease uh, Network and uh, about uh, 30 um, ophthalmologists uh, came to uh, a wonderful place in, in France and we, we basically uh, went through the eye part of the ontology for um, two and a half days and just added terms, fixed a few mistakes and, um, and so on. And so that's that's a reason why I think the that that separates HPO from many of the other clinical uh, terminologies that we, we think the HPO represents or tries to represent really the state of the art of of experts in in the field, and um, it it also has a much deeper and broader coverage of phenotypes. So uh, currently about fifteen thousand terms and. Uh, the United Medical Language System at uh, the National Library of Medicine actually did a comparison a couple of years ago and said if you took everything else that you have in, um, in their system, including SNOMED, and, and just said how many phenotype terms do we have, it was about 25% of the HPO. And I, I think the difference is, if anything, has only grown. And that's meant that UMLS has now imported HPO. And uh, we, we've um, also, I'm not sure if this is, um, public yet, but we've, we've agreed to, to work with, with SNOMED to, to create um, a, a mapping, uh, which we hope will help those people who are starting to work uh, with HPO terms in uh, the, the electronic health records. Um, another thing that I just mentioned briefly that differentiates HPO from some other um, vocabularies is that each of the terms is, is defined with reference to other ontologies using uh, logical expressions that are technically are called OWL class definitions, but I'll, I'll skip the, the details. 
but so if you're saying deeply set I, um, essentially you're, you're talking about an I, and so there's an ontology that um, uh, ha has terms for each of the parts of the body. Um, and, and then you're saying, well, what's the quality that, uh, that, that's abnormal about the I? And, and we're using, there's another ontology of qualities called peto that we're using. And so by, by, by sort of making definitions such as that, we can, we can define a lot of the things that are, um, a lot of the HPO terms uh, with references to abnormal functions in gene ontology, abnormal anatomical uh, configurations. Uh, we can reference abnormal cell types. We can refer reference abnormal biochemistry pathology, embryology, and, and a few others. Um, and, and so this is one of the things that makes the HPO also a very sophisticated uh, computational tool that, that um, a lot of people um, ha have exploited for uh, algorithms, for instance, for uh, genomic um, diagnostics. So just briefly, what, what does phenotype mean? Well, it actually means different things to different fields, to different peoples, people. And so, you know, if you're a biologist, a phenotype is, let's say, the color of a butterfly's wing or the weight of a whale, whatever. But in, in medical contexts, um, it's usually a deviation from some norm. Um, and another thing to realize about the word phenotype is that it's used in some contexts to refer to a disease. Um, and in another context to refer to the individual features of that disease. And, and that's actually what we mean when we say phenotype. So we actually mean phenotypic feature. And that can be a sign. So that's something that a doctor will um, discover on a physical exam. So something like a heart murmur. A symptom is something that a patient complains about, lab findings in, in the blood or otherwise, imaging studies like chest x-ray or, or CT. Uh, neurophysiology, um, many other things like that. So um, this, this enables what uh, many people call deep phenotyping, which is um, sort of the opposite of a gestalt diagnosis. So if mo most of us were, were to see a, ch a child with a Down syndrome, uh, we could just say, oh, I recognize that gestalt. You don't have to think very hard. But uh, there's so many different diseases in genetics and in medicine in general that no physician can gestalt uh, all of the diseases. And so most physicians consciously or unconsciously sort of record the individual phenotypic features and then try to do pattern matching. And so that, that's really what HPO is trying to uh, support. And um, so one of, the, one of the big things that HPO tries to support is genomic medicine. And, you know, wh when I was starting genetics in the 90s, it, you know, the thing was somebody would come to you and they would have a, a disease such as neurofibromatosis and, well, you knew what gene it was. And so you would basically do a PCR of that gene and maybe screen that gene using, there were many methods that people, millennials will not ever have heard about. But um, if you found a nonsense mutation in that gene, you had made the diagnosis because you, you already knew what gene it had to be based on the clinical diagnosis. And that, that still is done today for, for some diseases. But for, for exome and genome sequencing, you know, you don't know what the gene is. And so you have two challenges. One of them is to basically find the right gene that could be mutated. And the second is to, to decide, well, is, is there um, a, a truly pathogenic mutation in that gene? And, and the issue is that with um, typical bioinformatic filters, you're, you're left with up to you know, 500 uh, candidates per exome, maybe hundreds more in a genome. And it, you know, even if you have a trio or, or some other way of narrowing this down, you, you typically still have a list that, that's relatively long. And so one of the things that um, phenotype analysis can help you with is to take the list that you have for your exome or genome sequence, and it might be 5, 10, or it might be 500, depending on you know, how, you, how you've done your, your exome sequencing. And, and basically to say, let's um, rearrange the list of candidates such that the most, the, the candidate genes and diseases most likely to be the cause of what you observed in your patient are at the top of the list. 
And, and this means that when you're showing the result to, to a diagnostician, to a clinician, you know, hopefully they, they just need to look at the first page and they say, oh yeah, that must be it. And then, you know, they go about and confirm it by co-segregation um, or, or other analyses. And, and so this, this slide here is an example of, of why this is so difficult, um, in, at least in, in some cases. Uh, so this was when I was still in Berlin and, and uh, we were seeing patients and um, I, was, I was fortunate enough to be in a department with some really good clinicians uh, and, and uh, I'll mention Denise Horn and Luitgard Neumann as, as, as two of the ones I've, I had a lot uh, to do with. And um, anyway, we, we saw these two patients within a few weeks of each other and we didn't even realize that um, they had the same disease. And it, it turned out that they had uh, something called Wiedemann-Steiner syndrome, which, which um, had recently been uh, described as being caused by uh, uh, um, mutations in a certain gene. And, and I, I don't wanna talk about that disease, but uh, the, let's just look at these profiles. So the blue boxes show essentially the HP, part of the HPO database, which is derived from uh, OMEM and derived from the literature. And uh, so this is, this is sort of the, the standard profile of disease. And the yellow ones are for the girl and the red ones are for the boy. And we see, for instance, in the, in the literature, we have short toe, that's the top line. The boy had long toe. Um, the, the second line, short middle phalanx of finger. Well, the girl had cone-shaped epiphysis of the phalanges. So it's not quite the same thing, but it's the same organ. Um, the, Neurological phenotype was similar, but the, the girl had microcephaly, the boy had macrocephaly, and, and there were a few other differences like that. And so, you know, if, if you try to do an exact match uh, in genetics, you'll fail. So you, you have to have, have a, to be able to do a fuzzy match uh, to, 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 to even match the right disease. And, and the other thing that we, we found that you need is um, to weight the terms by specificity. So for instance, many patients will have intellectual disability. That's a very common feature in genetic disease, but uh, many fewer will have, let's say, cone-shaped epiphysis of the phalanges of the hand. And so a lot of the software that uses HPO um, uses something called uh, information content to um, assess the specificity of terms and to weight it. And uh, one, of the, one of the tools we, we've developed is called Exomizer. And so Exomizer will take as input a, a variant call format file, a BCF file that represents your exome or genome, and will also take a list of HPO terms. And essentially will we'll filter the, the exome or, or genome um, for uh, predicted pathogenic variants. And so if we look at the left side, and maybe you see the arrow underneath variant score um, there are a bunch of stars representing variants, and two of the stars are dark, so those are predicted to be pathogenic by our software. And our software does a couple of really clever things, and it's, it's, we're, it's going to be doing more clever things um, soon, but a lot of this is standard. So you look this up and look at polyphen or, or SIFT scores, and more recently, um, CAD and, and REVEL, but uh, you, you, that's, that's, that, all of that is, I'm just gonna say that's standard bioinformatics. That's what still leaves you with 10 or 100 candidates. And, and then um, we use the HPO terms that you've entered to uh, calculate phenotypic profiles. And so for each of the genes, we associate it first with human diseases if available. And if not, we can map many of the genes to their orthologs in, in mouse and fish. And uh, I'm not gonna explain it but right now, but we, we can match phenotypes across species. And um, there's a couple of other bells and whistles that I'll, I'll skip right now. But the, in this example, um, the, there's a good phenotype profile for two genes, the one on the far right and the one on the far left. And if we combine the variant and the phenotype score, there's only one gene that has both a good phenotype profile and a good variant profile. And, and that's, that's the one that um, Exomizer ranks the most highly. And um, so in the meantime, Exomizer has been used by, by quite a few um, uh, people and, and consortia. And um, 
one of the one of the groups was um, the uh, sorry I, I can't write notes um, the um, uh, NIH undiagnosed diseases program uh, which um, UDP and they looked at several hundred patients and basically and said that uh, exomizer increased their diagnostic yield by up to 20%, and which is pretty good because they spend up to a week per case. Um, and more recently, the 100,000 Genomes Project um, has, has been using uh, exomizer in its uh, genomizer mode. So it also looks for non-coding mutations. And um, that it turned out to be the best performing software of quite a few uh, softwares that were, were tested. Um, so here, here are some uh, numbers. Um, there, there is a paper now under uh, review that um, da Damien Smedley and Jules Jacobson have been um, have been leading, uh, and uh, that that will be out a little bit later this year, describing uh, that experience. So I think I'm, I'm just going to going to skip this for now because I th I feel like I'm uh, possibly pushing the time. Um, I'd like to um, talk about uh, another software that, that we just published uh, called Lyrical. And um, so the, there, uh, I, th I think this is a very interesting um, advance. And um, so if you, if you look at studies in um, the, the detection rate for exome or genome sequencing uh, is is at best forty or fifty percent, and and in some cohorts it's even less than that, and and so that means that in about half of the cases, and maybe even three quarters of the cases, the the disease or gene at rank one is wrong, and so exomizer doesn't really help you realize that it just sort of has something that's on rank one, and um, so that's one thing we were trying to address. How do we how do we estimate how good the the matches are? And, and the other thing is that um, the way our software has worked to date, it, it just says, well, this is the phenotype matching score, but it doesn't tell you how well individual HPO features support a diagnosis or argue against it. And so our, our goal uh, was to develop an algorithm uh, to, to help with both of these things. And um, this, this has been uh, basically my pet project for the last uh, six years, and and very happy that we we managed to um, pu publish this uh, this month, just a few days ago. Um, I'll, I'll give you the reference in, in a bit, but this is what you would see if you're using the software. So, uh, in this case, we we've entered um, a, a list of about ten HPO terms that are shown on the, the spark lines under the profile match. I'm not sure if you can see my my mouse, but um, you see the little green and red bars, and um, so the 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 this in this view we see that the congenital variant of Rett syndrome has a pretty good phenotype match for most of the terms that we entered, and for the last three it's not so great. And the the last uh, bar here is is for the gene match, which um, shown on the very right, FOXG1 gene. And uh, so this has a post-test probability that the software estimates as 100%. I mean, it's like 99.999 something. And the, the next candidate, the next couple of candidates still have a decent post-test probability. And if we look at the spark lines, we say, well, they all have some phenotype terms which match, but it, there are many that don't match. And um, as, as soon as we get down to the candidate at rank five, you know, it, it Kind of looks like it's just noise, and the post-test probability is estimated at, at zero percent. So, if you were using the software, uh, my advice to you would be look at the first four candidates closely and and try to figure this out. Once you get down to a post-test probability that's close to zero, um, essentially this program is not going to help you anymore, and it. You should probably, if you if you still want to search harder, you should use another program or, or another way of looking at the variants. But our program is basically saying, look at the top four, especially the top one. Sorry, um, and so the this, this software is actually using a new mathematical framework. So as far as I know, all of the um, 
software that's out there that uses HPO is using something called information content. And this is something we developed in uh, the Phenomizer algorithm 2009. And, and this led to these two problems that I mentioned at the beginning. And uh, so this is a new framework and essentially we're, we're calculating um, a likelihood ratio in which is, uh, I think I, sh I showed, uh, it, it's basically defined as the probability um, of um, seeing a certain abnormality given you have the disease divided by the probability of seeing that abnormality given you don't have the disease. And um, so the, the software, uh, essentially we, we came up with a way of calculating that probability and uh, I'll refer to the paper for the mathematical details and just say that we, we have essentially different equations for um, different configurations of query term and, um, and, and disease terms, annotated terms. Um, and so we did, we did uh, a, a bunch of um, evaluations and uh, we, we basically uh, wanted to compare this to a lot of other software, but um, a, a lot of the sort of HPO software that gets out there is published, but not really supported the academic software or it's, there's, there's some very nice commercial software, but we can't really use that to test because we don't have a license. Um, so we, we basically compared this to our own software, Exomizer, and um, uh, and and if we're looking at um, the the original data from 384 case studies that we biocurated from the literature, um, Lyrical had a very slight advantage, uh, but essentially it's about the same as Exomizer. Um, however, um, Lyrical has a couple of features that make it robust to to noise and um, and. We, we tried here in panel C and D uh, to, um, to say, what, what about the case where you have an autosomal recessive disease, but you only pick up one heterozygous mutation? And so in, in some, in short read exomes or genomes, sometimes you'll miss, let's say a deletion of a single exon, right? So it'll, it'll just look like it's a reference sequence. And if you have a, a point mutation in another exon, then you you might the you, the call that you'll get from GATK or, or whatever will be heterozygous mutation, but you say, oh, it's an autosomal recessive gene, so that can't be it. So a lot of software will not weight those hits very highly, but but actually, um, if it's a really good phenotype hit, um, it it you still want to look at it as a clinician and maybe decide whether to do to look at the BAM file to search for a deletion or, or just to do PCRs if you think it's a great candidate. And so Lyrical is using a genotype model that helps you pick that out. And this uh, panel D essentially shows that um, even if we remove one of the two alleles, uh, still most of the candidates get ranked at rank one. And the bottom line is, is essentially just showing if we add noise terms, so we, we replace uh, an original term with just unrelated HPO terms, how well do we still do? If we decrease the specificity of HPO terms by replacing them with a parent or a grandparent term, how well do we do? And the, here, in, in both cases, we're, we're showing an advantage over um, the algorithm we're currently using in Exomizer for the phenotype matching. And so th this is, if you uh, use the tool, this is what you would see. It, uh, generates an HTML page at, for each of the top candidates and shows the contribution of each of the terms. In this case, we see that most of the terms are a good match, a couple are, are bad match. Um, and, and looking at this, if you're saying, okay, this is Rett syndrome congenital variant, and we're seeing inability to walk, delayed speech and language, hypoplasia of the frontal lobes. Well, actually these do match the disease. They're, they're just not in the HPO database, which is, is you know, nothing is complete in this world. So if you're looking at this as a doctor, you would say, well, yeah, actually, this is an ex excellent match for that disease. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk, a do I still have time, Pablo? Yeah, I'm gonna talk uh, about um, a couple of more recent things that uh, uh, go in direction of uh, precision medicine. Um, so we, we've been working, um, 
with the, the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health to develop um, a format called PhenoPackets. Um, I'd like to point out that the, many of the original ideas were developed by Ian um, Buske, who, who has a, is, um, I, I'm not aware of his exact role in phenotypes, but I'm sure everybody knows him. And, um, and um, but, but we've expanded this uh, and Orion has continued to, to work on this with us and um, to provide a, a general way of, ex, of exchanging um, phenotype data for uh, research or, or diagnostics. And um, the basic idea is, is you know, um, you, you might be asking, well, wait a second, I thought you said HPO was a standard, but well, what if you're trying to, you know, describe a patient? Do you send me a list of HPO terms in an Excel file? And if so, you know, what about the age of the patient? And, you know, what about things like severe or um, what if you excluded an HPO term? How do you do that? And, and there was no format for that. And so PhenoPackets um, uh, does that. And it also has a lot of um, other elements that uh, are intended for use in um, cancer uh, and for common disease, for describing treatments. Um, and um, so this, the, the initial version of PhenoPackets was um, adopted by GA4GH uh, last year. And we are, we are now in the process of developing a, a version two, which will have some, some extensions. This version is um, now being um, considered for ISO certification. And uh, we, we're hoping that it will find a, a broad um, acceptance. So why would you want to use a phenopacket? Well, um, we, we think there are a lot of uh, use cases. Um, one obvious one is for um, diagnostic tools. And so, for instance, if you have uh, phenotype data in phenotypes or, or something like phenot uh, phenotip, sorry, um, and, and you say, well, I want to use this for exomizer. Well, well currently, um, the, the format of exomizer that existed until very recently was a, a YAML file, and, and you would have to uh, either create this with some other software tool or, or pull out an editor and do this by hand, and it was kind of annoying. And um, so in, in the version of Exomizer that's being released as we speak or this week or next week, uh, you will be able to use a, um, a phenopacket as an input format. And so you could essentially say, export this from your software of choice and, and just run it. And, and so that would save a lot of time. Um, also, uh, you know, there are a lot of different phenotype tools out there that use HPO uh, and uh, to date, each one of them has its own um, input format, but um, actually now Exomizer, Lyrical, and a tool by the Kai Wang Lab, uh, who, who is at um, Children's Hospital in Philadelphia and doing really great work. Uh, and it's called, I think, Fentagene, also I think is, is using um, phenopackets as an input format. So we're hoping that that will just make it easier so that if, you're, if you say, I want to try these 10 tools because I wanted to see what they all say, uh, now you can just use one input format. So that's obvious. We're, um, another thing which is really difficult is um, doing uh, genotype-phenotype correlation studies. And so, um, you know, when I was starting to do research in the 90s, my mentor said, let's, let's just do genotype-phenotype studies on the NF1 gene and, and just look at some papers. And, and so the only way of, of collecting this was in something like Excel, which was just a complete nightmare. And essentially, um, journals don't, there's no standardized way of capturing um, a, a case report from a journal. And so now we're actually talking with um, a number of journals in our, in our field about um, phenopackets. And we, in a project led by Melissa Hendel, my Monarch colleague, uh, we, we have um, funding from NHGRI to uh, develop um, phenopackets for journals. And so maybe the next time one of you submits a case report, uh, you, you'll be um, asked if, if you want to submit a, a phenopacket and that will go into a, a databases. Similarly, for, for patient registries and trials, and we, we think there's, there's actually quite a few uh, use cases of just saying this is a standard way of representing the data so that anybody who's writing algorithms will know where to start. Um, this is going to be my final topic. Um, I don't, I'm not able to see the clock because I have a, a full screen here. So if I'm starting to run out of time, Pavel will start to 
wildly gesticulate, I hope, um, so that I see it. But um, I'm, I'm going to start talking about electronic health records and precision medicine. Um, so everything to date has been about rare disease. Now we're getting into the range, into the area of common disease. And so um, in electronic health records um, in, in this country, most hospitals use LOINC to denote lab tests. And so currently, um, actually it's more than, it's, I think it's closer to 100,000 now, there are 100,000 different LOINC lab tests. And so if you're getting this information out of a, an electronic health record, you'll, you'll have this LOINC number and you'll have a, a number that represents the outcome of the test. And um, we were starting to, to, we were participating in a project where people were doing machine learning on, on, on um, EHR data and, and they were just taking the results from lab tests and essentially making one column for each LOINC code. Uh, and we thought, well, actually that's kind of stupid because many of these LOINC codes are very related. And so for instance, nitrite in urine, that's something they'll measure if you are suspected of having a, a bladder infection. And if, if you do have nitrite in, in your urine, you probably have a bacterial bladder infection. And you can measure this with a, a strip. I'm sure you guys have seen that. You can also put this, uh, you know, put a drop of urine into a, a machine and, and there are several varieties of each. So there are actually four LOINC tests, LOINC codes for this. But if any one of these tests is positive, you have nitritoria and the medical interpretation is the same. And so we, we developed, um, a uh, software library in, in Java that um, essentially takes the, the LOINC TET code, uh, the outcome of that code, which uh, can be represented in, in several ways, including something called um, Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource or FIRE. And so if you're doing a potassium test and the result is low, you have hypokalemia. And um, and so just to give you an idea of how you might use this, uh, we, we tested um, a cohort of about 16,000 patients at University of North Carolina who had asthma or other uh, basically respiratory diseases. And um, we were able to map, um, a, I think about, uh, forgetting how many, I think it was like 60 uh, unique codes per patient. And we basically just said, you know, are, which of these codes are predicting asthma? And um, for, for most of these codes, they, for no, for some of these codes were just mapped to one LOINC term, but you see um, roughly uh, a third of them were mapped to two or, or more than, even more than three, um, three or more LOINC terms. And um, so, whoops, I think I'm missing a slide here. Anyway, we, we, we managed to, um, uh, we, we did a, a very simple statistical analysis with logistic regression and found uh, five HPO terms associated with asthma, uh, such as eosinophilia. And actually each one of these um, corresponded to a published study about an asthma biomarker. And we didn't have anything that was not uh, published. And so we had, this is a, a pretty impressive result for um, uh, a, a pilot study. And, and this, this is, we're now using this um, actually in, in a large project called the uh, National COVID Cohort Collaborative, which is being uh, led by my uh, colleague, Melissa Hendel, uh, and, and by Chris Schutt at uh, Johns Hopkins. And this is gonna be the largest uh, um, collection of data ever, really, um, of electronic health record data on, on one disease um, brought together. And so there, we are anticipating um, data on, on uh, several hundreds of thousands of patients and this is a big project. I'm not gonna go into all of the details. Um, a paper is just coming out in uh, uh, JAMIA uh, shortly about it, if you're interested. But what, what we're doing is we're um, uh, basically transforming the data that is coming from this project, which, which is um, encoded using one of the um, EHR formats called OMOP into one phenopacket per, per patient. And um, we've, we've been developing um, machine learning uh, software to, to essentially uh, learn from graphs of data and texts of data that we are going to be applying to this. Um, 
and uh, this is called Embiggen. Uh, this um, implements something called Notivec, which was uh, published uh, about five or six years ago by, by Google. And um, we actually managed to speed it up by a factor of a thousand. I love saying that. And um, th this, this actually enabled us to, um, uh, and, and you know, previously using the software from Google, th this would take, you know, 36 hours on, even on powerful software now it takes, you know, 15 minutes for one run. And so that, that enabled us to, to um, optimize the parameters and actually boost the accuracy, the ROC by about 15%. And um, we, we've, uh, Justin Reese, who you see here has been one of the um, colleagues, he's in Chris Mungle's group, who, who's also in, in, in Monarch um, on a, uh, uh, a first version of a, a knowledge graph about COVID-19 that um, you, you might also be interested in. Anyway, I think that's about all I want to say. I, I want to thank um, the, the many people, only some of which are, are, are listed here, who have contributed to HPO over the years. So we've been really um, blessed by, by the amount of interest in the, in the community and the, the, the contributions that, that we've uh, been, been lucky enough to, to get. So thank you for, for listening. Thank you, Peter. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll jump right into the questions as we've had uh, quite a lot of interest come through. Uh, and one sort of relevant to your, to your last point about a lot of the contributors that you can see on this slide, somebody asked, what is the process for updating slash adding HPO terms to the database? So how can, how can other researchers and clinicians contribute to the HPO? Um, yeah, so there, there are two ways. So if, if you want to contribute one term, or have noticed one error somewhere, then we have a, a GitHub tracker. Uh, and, and so if you go to the HPO webpage there, um, maybe I can just show, can I, can I show? So um, if you go to the HPO webpage, um, there is um, some, some documentation about this. And so if you go to uh, how to contribute to HPO. Uh, there, there's a little bit more information about this, but the main way for one term is to go to GitHub. And um, so uh, we've actually had over 5,800 5, uh, requests over the last, I think, eight years here. So it's been pretty active. And we're, we're still working on about 200 of them. And, and you would basically say new issue and um, so if you wanted to say, I suggest a new term for um, something and, and you would say what the name of it was and you would provide uh, some, some information here. Um, and so that it's, it's described on the, on the website if you, if you want to do that. So we very much appreciate con contributions like that. If, you, um, if you're in a consortium and you're studying, let's say, you know, spleen disease, and you say, actually, you know what, the HPO needs about 50 new terms about the spleen, uh, then the best thing to do would be to get into contact with me by email, and we would, we would set up essentially a small workshop. And we used to do these in person, um, uh, but who knows what we'll be able to do in these um, interesting times. <laughs> Certainly, yes. Yeah. So we obviously encourage uh, people to submit terms to the HPO because the more collaboration we have from a variety of specialists, the better the ontology uh, gets, certainly. Um, we had a few other questions come through. Um, we have, uh, so somebody said, while working, so working with the HPO data in data science, we regularly encounter the problem that there seems to be a significant intra-observer bias because the HPO terms can be very specific. Uh, or it can be very broad. Uh, so they're saying next to that, because there are so many, sometimes terms are alike, while sometimes, uh, while not being in the same, I guess, tree of the ontology or in the same, yeah. um, uh, the, the same part of the ontology. They said, how do you handle this? Are there any insights for that? Well, um, the, yeah, I mean, th this is this is a general problem that um, uh, it has afflicted many people and many projects. There's no general solution to to that, but um, you know, it is 
possible to say, you know, so if you have um, an annotation to something that's really specific, by inference, all of the ancestors of that term are also positive. So let's say you're talking about, you know, abnormal cerebellum morphology. You can go down about another six levels in the HPO, but if, you know, half of your clinicians just entered abnormal, abnormal cerebellar morphology and the other, others went way down, you could just say, well, I'm just going to inherit everything up to the level of abnormal cerebellar morphology or not abnormal cerebellar morphology. Um, that might be ap appropriate if you have very mixed levels of detail. Um, another thing to do, actually, I mean, um, I, I swear I've never gotten any money from phenotypes, but it is a nice software and you can set it up to say, everybody who's participating in this study needs to answer these questions. Yes, no, or I didn't look. That's correct, Pablo, right? You, you can still do that, right? Yeah, so that, that would be one way of sort of trying to ensure that everybody who's participating in your study is annotating to a required level of detail and having, you know, an explicit, no, I ruled it out, but is much better than just not entering something. And I, I, I think phenotypes also supports that. So that, so, uh, you know, the best way is to get good data before you start to do the analysis. And uh, the second best way is, is, you know, there's never, it's never a good idea, but, you know, it, it might be good to just sort of inherit everything up to a general level in that case. Great. Um, we, I think we still have time for one more question. So I'll, I'll sort of uh, swing it towards the precision medicine side. What do you think uh, are some of the barriers that may have been hindering the, the sort of the progress of precision medicine uh, and, have, and have, have any of those things changed in the last five to 10 years? Well, um... You know, the, 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 I, I think it's just important to realize, you know, precision medicine is something that's going to take, you know, decades or, or centuries to, to realize. And, uh, you know, the, the war on cancer, so-called, was initially started by President Nixon uh, about 50 years ago, I think. And, and um, if, if you, if you read, uh, uh, there's a great book, uh, Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies, that just describes how ca the cancer research and treatment has progressed over the years. And, you know, really, it's over yeah, 200 years, small steps, but now we are so much better than we were back then. I'm pretty sure it's going to be similar. Hope Maybe, maybe it'll be a little bit faster with precision medicine, but, um, you know, I think um, one of the main barriers is, is phenotype. So getting uh, getting sufficient data of sufficient detail from a sufficiently large number of patients. That's, that's one of the motivations for, for um, phenopackets. So, you know, in essence, uh, you could now um, extract a, a relatively detailed representation of a patient from an electronic healthcare record uh, into a, a, a phenopacket. And this would, this, if you did this for 100,000 patients in your hospital and had and could correlate that with genomics data, you know, that would, I, I think that that would um, accelerate things. And so that's, um, if you are interested, we're, you know, we're very, the Phenopackets project is uh, GA4GH, it's very open. And um, we're, we're now in, in the pr process of, of sort of finalizing version two, but there's definitely room for ideas, contributions, people to test things out. Uh, over the next uh, six months or so. So I would encourage you to, to join us. Right, we have time, I think, for one more quick question, but we probably have to keep the answer to about 20 seconds. Um, so the question is, the software filters out the less relevant and less specific features in order to reach a differential diagnosis. Is it not precisely what the experienced clinician does? <laughs> well, you may have noticed I have difficulties with uh, verbosity, so it's hard to give a short answer to that. But um, yeah, I mean, it, with, with a lot of luck, any of these uh, algorithms will, will simulate to a certain extent what an experienced clinician would do. None of them does it really very, uh, you know, none of them would come as close to a clinician who 
knew that disease already, who saw the patient there, saw the data. So it, it's, I, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in, in bioinformatics to, to get, um, get the algorithms to work better and better. Great. Well, well thank you, Peter, for, for presenting for us today uh, and for the insightful uh, discussion as well. So you can follow Dr. Robinson on Twitter. The handle is PNRobbins. You can also follow the Monarch Initiative, the Human Phenotype Ontology, and Jackson Labs um, using the so Twitter handle for Jackson Lab is Jackson Labs. Monarch Initiative uh, is Monarch Init, and Human Phenotype Ontology is HP underscore Ontology. Also, a big thank you to our audience today uh, for tuning in and for asking those questions. You can follow us Phenotips on Twitter and LinkedIn as well um, to stay tuned about the latest updates, events, and also the latest speaker series schedule. Please stay tuned for our upcoming October webinar on leadership roles in genetic counseling. You'll see a feedback link at the end of the session. Please click on it uh, and take a minute or so just to answer a few questions and you can vote on what future webinar topics may be. Thank you very much, everyone. Take care. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye, everybody.